I don't actually want you to raise your hand, but just think to yourself if you have read or seen either the book or the movie of any material regarding the Left Behind series, uh, comic books, and or trading cards. Uh, do they have trading cards? I don't think they do. There's movies. So have you, you know, just think to yourself, have you seen or heard those things? Don't raise your hands because I don't want to be depressed. But if you have seen these things and you think that uh, God is just getting ready to let the world fall into a great deception and the Antichrist will soon be unveiled and he'll have a mark on his forehead and be an undead uh, fake resurrector, uh, I I just submit to you that uh, you've been deceived. Many of you might not even know what I'm talking about. There is a popular series called Left Behind, and it is uh, a very in, invasive uh, set of teachings and doctrines. It's, it's presented as as uh, what you might call prophetic or future historical fiction. As in, you know, you might read a book and it's historical fiction. It's set in the Civil War and there's a fake story, but they they paint it with historical flavors and terms and, and scenarios to give you, uh, you know, a story of what it would have been like. And so the Left Behind series is kind of a it's unique in that way. It's it's almost like sci-fi in that it's covering future events, and the they you know make a story around these people who uh, you know either don't make it out in the right tribulation or whatever. Um, I would submit to you that that a theology or an eschatology that is a belief about the end times that lets all of the world fall into deception and also lets all of the church fall away except for some, uh, is a theology in which God has either done one or two things. He has been unable to convert the world, or he has been unwilling to convert the world. It's my opinion that the redemptive history presented in the Bible is ever-increasing light upon the earth that was in darkness and that light is continuing to triumph and that God's people are continuing to grow and purify. At the end of the age, there's not going to be a great deception in the church. There's going to be a bride who is what? Pure and spotless, which is speaking, of course, of the deeds of the saints, but also her theology, also how she lives with the Lord. And so... Many of us, when we hear the term Antichrist, we might think of, you know, some terribly different idea than what John is talking about. Um, just to rattle your eschatology, if you do subscribe to what you might call premillennial eschatology or pessimillennial eschatology, that is, things are going to get worse and worse before the end, and that God's going to come and vaporize the earth with giant heat balls that he hurls from heaven. I want to submit to you that God is interested in taking his creation back, that Satan, through deceiving even Adam, usurped authority or stole authority, and God is undoing that. Jesus Christ stamped his foot on the head of the serpent, fulfilling the promise in Genesis, and we are doing that as well. And so that is what we believe when we when we 
talk about going on mission. We, we talk about that a lot. We end our service now with a benediction to just bring home through rich, ritual the idea that you are going out into the world to shape and redeem and restore, and there are broken things that you need to put in order. There are bones that need to be set. There are, there are homes that need shored up foundations, so to speak. And to believe in an eschatology where everyone gets vaporized at the end of the age, uh, that that's just wholly incongruent with what you are trying to do. In bringing the gospel, in redeeming people, in redeeming families, in restoring educational systems, you are going out and shaping things, not going out and putting fire on things. You are putting a fire, a type of fire, the Holy Spirit himself, but not the kind of fire that's envisioned. Many times when people think about the Antichrist, they think of maybe the leader of the European Union or someone from Russia, as it's been, you know, uh, theorized in the the doomsday prophets of the evangelical church. But I would submit that John here is not at all attempting to point to something far in the future, but rather, as we were seeing last week, he is specifically talking to a group of Christians who are facing trial in the first century as the church is being born. We we talked about the analogy in when we were in Revelation. How do you shore up or or encourage a bride uh, who it might be faint of heart before she makes it to the wedding day? You remind her of the virtues and beauty and power and strength of her groom. And we looked at Revelation being not a book of apocalyptic literature in the sense that apocalyptic doomsday uh, scenarios, but rather apocalyptic in unveiling. Jesus Christ. As we, as you may remember during our time in Revelation, very briefly, we talked about the book of Revelation being primarily a revelation of Jesus Christ to strengthen the churches in Asia and uh, in the Middle East, uh, sorry, around the Mediterranean in uh, preparation for the great trials that they were going to face in the next few centuries. That, that is the persecution from Rome, the persecution from the Judaizers, and most importantly, as First John maintains, the persecution or the, the fear or the threat of incoming doctrine that is heresy. And so in this chapter, when John is describing antichrists, he is describing not someone at the end of our history, your and my history, he's describing someone or persons, I, I think he's describing persons, who would be apostles, so-called apostles, who would bring in strange doctrines, such as, you know, Jesus is not the Christ, or that the Father co-suffered with the Son on the cross, or things like this, or that God actually died uh, in in the crucifixion, et cetera, et cetera. And John here is shoring up the walls. He's he's making a clear line of demarcation between what is Christian doctrine and what is clearly Gnostic or antinomian doctrine. We saw last week how John is writing to the church and he's saying, be sure of this very thing, that the person who practices righteousness is righteous. That is, the one who walks according to the law of God is a true child of God. And so we saw last week how there are these dangers. Uh, if you read First John in a uh, in a contextless way, you may fear, oh, well, I know for, for a fact that I'm not practicing righteousness fully, and therefore, should I doubt my 
place as a child of God, we said absolutely not. John in no way is writing to believers in such a way as to say, you must be perfect in your walk to know that you're a believer, but rather, what is your practice? What is your walk? What is your way of life? So likewise, here he's talking to these believers, and he's saying that there are people who are coming in against Christ, and that is what he means by the term antichrist. Just to shake your confidence in a, a pessimillennial eschatology, the word Antichrist, for example, is not even in the book of Revelation at all, which may come as a surprise to you to, to hear that people have taken the book of Revelation and made it about future events that come at the end of the age so much that uh, they equate the Antichrist with the beast. And, you know, there's all this language and metaphor, which we saw is heavily dependent on Old Testament sources and not giving any weight to what those symbols have meant in the past. They reinterpret Revelation in a way uh, for their own devices. So uh, we, of course, are not in Revelation. We're in First John. So getting into the text today, we're going to look at a few different things. We're going to look at what John says is the last hour. Um, this is explicitly different than a term, the last day, the Lord's day, the coming of the Lord, the great day of judgment. This is a phrase that John uses to describe a particular time in the first century. He also goes on to describe these anti-apostles. He calls them antichrists, but I call them anti-apostles on purpose to give kind of a nuance to what's going on, what he says an antichrist is. We're going to look at the nature of an antichrist, not the antichrist, because I'm of the opinion that antichrists walk around all over the place. Now, when you hear me say that, I'm not saying that there is this undead, fake resurrected dude who has horns in his head, who is like leading the European Union or something, like a lot of people mean when they say the Antichrist is on the earth today. I believe that there are many Antichrists and that they uh, promulgate their doctrine in various spheres of teaching. Uh, those are those, according to John, that deny that Jesus is the Christ. That's the only criteria for you to be called an antichrist or someone who teaches anti-Christian doctrine. We're going to look at what John says is a purpose of scripture. Again, we are trying to see in our, in our study of John's writings, which is going to be cut short here in a few weeks, but uh, we're trying to see that John here is writing to the church. He's writing so that they would not fall back into darkness, but rather would remain in the light that they have. And so, he, again, he picks up this light and darkness theme uh, with deception and or truth. So uh, though those terms, light and darkness, are not clearly here, um, there is a little bit of nuance here, um, as we'll see. And then finally, there's a commendation at the end of this chapter, not the end of the book, um, that he encourages them, just like we saw last week, to once again remain in the truth that they've already heard from the apostles' teaching. So let's get into it. First uh, John 2, 18, children, it is the last hour. He says this concerning a particular set of churches at a particular time in history. This is a distinctly different phrase than what we said in the Nicene Creed, that he will come at the end of the age. That is, Jesus Christ will come back in a literal second coming. What John here is saying that concerning the last hour is not related to the second coming. Uh, 
it is only related to what we see in in church history, the book of Revelation, and the other epistles from Paul as the great judgment of the Lord. Not the great end day of the Lord, but a great day of the Lord. And so here John is saying, children, it's the last hour. He's plainly drawing on what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24, as we'll look in a second. Uh, stating that there is going to be a judgment that comes on the temple in Jerusalem. He says, children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. John here is saying, I give my apostolic authority to the correct interpretation that what Jesus said in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 is coming true now, today, when I'm writing the letter, John says. John's drawing on the language of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse to describe the nearness of the destruction of Jerusalem, and Jesus, in describing the destruction of Jerusalem, gives a warning He says that apostasy would attempt to come into the church. He doesn't say that it would. And then he goes on by way to say that these teachers are at the door. When Jesus is describing the destruction of Jerusalem in the Olivet Discourse, he says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead many astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, what Jesus is saying in this, chap- in this verse is he's saying that around the same time as, as the, the sin of Israel is becoming ripe in her, and the stench is becoming so great in the nostrils of Rome, around this same time, other people will come and say, I'm Jesus in his second coming, or I'm another great teacher, another great prophet, and they will try to come into the church. And what John is saying is he's saying this is the last hour. The last hour is immediately at hand, not 2,000 years later. He's saying this is the last hour right now. He's saying that immediately at the time in the first century, the end of the time of the nation state of Israel is at the door. He's not saying 2,000 years later uh, that it is the last hour. So if, if we believe that, let's just work with that as a foundation. Who, is, who are these antichrists that John is describing. Well, he goes on to explicitly say in the next verse what they, who they are and what they're doing. I, I want to impress upon you that the term Antichrist is defined right here. It is not defined anywhere else. It's not defined by drawing an analogy to the beast or the mark of the beast or this other stuff. It is an explicitly defined term that, that uh, John the Apostle is using to warn the church of going away from the doctrine of Christ. That's plainly what the term is being used for. These are guys who are messengers or would-be apostles. That's why I call them anti-apostles, because they're speaking against the apostles. These are guys, according to John, who have gone out from the apostles, and they've they've invented new strange doctrines, like Jesus is not really God, but, but when Jesus was baptized, then godness came upon him. Things like this. Those are those are true doctrines that that were attempted to be brought into the church, or that Jesus is not divine; he is just a Messiah, and that the disciples in their uh, this is this is what liberal Christianity maintains today. Disciples in their zeal for the Lord, they have turned Jesus into God and man, but but Jesus himself never uh, accepted the term or never pro- uh, promoted the idea. These are doctrines that have been. Uh, coming into the church, trying to come into the church, and John here is warning against that. 
he says in verse 19, they went out from us, that is, they, they were around or with the apostles or they were in the churches. They say they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been with us, or sorry, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. John here is kind of giving a, a scenario saying, the, the ones who are the apostles are sent by someone. Jesus Christ sent the 12 into Jerusalem and then finally Judea, Samaria, the utmost parts of the earth. And likewise, the church commissioned and sent others. For example, Stephen um, in, in Acts 6 and 7. And, and at this point, the apostles are not sending anybody out. John here is saying, if they were of us, if they were our spiritual children, then they would have remained with us because we didn't send anybody. They would have had a letter. They would have had authority. And they came to you in division, not with authority, not with blessing from the apostles. If you remember when Paul and, uh, and Barnabas are at the church in Antioch, they didn't leave until they were sent. Paul the Apostle, the greatest missionary, arguably, uh, in, ch- in the church's history, was commissioned by a church that had uh, sent him for a specific task. You can't just kind of go out into the world and proclaim yourself to be an apostle or a missionary or an evangelist and have any authority or backing. Someone needs to send you. So here... John is saying, they were not of us, for if they were of us, then they would have continued with us until they were mature or had, uh, you know, escaped the condemnation of the uh, enemy. But they went out from us that it might become plain that they are not of us. John here is saying that these anti-apostles, these people who are speaking against the plain doctrine that Jesus is the Christ, the only Son of God, these people have gone out so that it would be clear that they were the ones that Paul describes as, you know, vessels destined for destruction, that they're they're gods unto themselves, they work, they preach the gospel supposedly, but only for the sake of money. These are those type of apostles. John, of course, knows the strength of the apostolic teaching and in no way is, is concerned, but does provide the church with warning, saying, be on the lookout, but he's at the same time confident. This is amazing faith and grace. When I see this and I hear of the style and nuance of these heresies, which lead Christians away from the truth, for John to say these things, giving a warning, and then back it up with confidence in the work of the Holy Spirit and the anointing of each individual believer is amazing faith to me. That's beyond what I I personally uh, maintain would be necessary for our church. Um, I think John here is writing to a church with elders, a well-established community. He's confident that they're not going to be taken out by these uh, heretics, these these antichrists. And so he says in verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. He's saying that though there are these doctrines that are coming in against the church, against Christ, you have heard the truth. And that truth, when you hear the error, will set you free. At that point, you will know the truth. Verse 21, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. Again, this is getting to the point of what the scripture is for in a believer's life. The scripture is not to necessarily lead you to Christ, although it does that. Scripture is not written for the world. 
it's not written, you don't just hand out Gospels of John and expect pagan idolaters to read it and convert. Now, that has happened, but I don't think it has been the majority strategy for the church for the last 2,000 years. The scriptures are twisted by those who are untrained, But as Peter says. And so he's saying, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know the truth. It is only a Christian inspired by the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit, who can read the scriptures in such a way as to receive blessing or truth from them. And so John here is saying, I'm writing not because you need to know the truth, but because you already know it and you need to be on the lookout for these strange doctrine guys, the the ones who say Jesus is not the Christ. As he goes on in in, uh, the later verses to explain, He says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. He's saying plainly that if a, if a anti-apostle, if a apostle who would be called an apostle, but is only an apostle in his own uh, speech or own estimation, if he shows up and starts lying to you, reject him completely. Uh, That's exactly the same, um, standard as what the prophets of old were required to conform to in the Old Testament, and likewise, it should be with our own teaching and doctrine. I don't particularly think that, um, you know, certain individuals in the church are necessarily anti-apostles or um, particular uh, anti-Christs, if you will, but I don't get any spiritual wisdom or insight or feed from the streams of guys I know to reject core Christian doctrines. These are the people who you would consider to be modern-day heretics, those who would go away from the truth. Um, I don't have any fellowship with liberal Christian theologians who deny the authenticity of the scriptures, the deity of Christ, etc., although they have great doctrines when it comes to applying Christianity in a social justice context things like that. I think that those are great, but I don't listen to them at all because there is no lie in the truth. So anything that is of plainly of the devil, that is Jesus is not the Christ, or that the Son of God uh, attained deity or became a god, things like that are just wholesale out of, out of bounds. For example, I lived in Salt Lake City. I actually had a dream, and this is kind of weird, I had a dream of my school last night, and the school was actually being shut down. It was kind of weird. I I never think of... The only times, uh, for those who've been through college, I think you have a reoccurring dream like I do. I have a reoccurring dream that I've missed an exam, missed a test, haven't done my homework. God bless you and keep you. Uh, But I had a dream, and my school was uh, going out of business for some reason. But anyway, uh, that school was was a a school in the heart of Mormon uh, culture in Salt Lake City, Utah. Now, our Mormon brothers and sisters do believe they're Christians. However, they do not maintain that God is eternal and that Jesus is eternally God's son. And they also have some very weird ideas about the uh, after afterlife. Um, but needless to say, I did not, while I was there, fellowship in anything but friendship with the LDS believers, so-called believers. They they maintain their Christians. I they do not hold to the creeds. Um, and so, though they have very good lives, families, uh, personalities, careers, though they look good on the surface, I don't have any fellowship with them because I don't maintain that I'm a strong enough believer and know the doctrines of Christ 
well enough to continually fellowship with them or to participate in their religious ceremonies, etc. And neither should you. Uh, foolishly, one time I went to a Unitarian worship service because I was in Chicago and Frank Lloyd Wright has this wonderful building that he made. I should have gone to the building and not gone to the service. I've since, uh, I've since repented of the, that event. Um, likewise, I attend music programs at the Masonic Temple, but never would attend a worship service at the Masonic Temple because it is a different religion distinctly against Christianity. Uh, a at best, Mormon, uh, sorry, um, uh, Freemasonry would be called a deism. Uh, they don't name a particular power. They don't name Jesus Christ as the only Son of God. They acknowledge other prophets from other religions. And so, at best, Freemasonry would be a deism or a theistic religion that does that is not explicitly Christian uh, or Judas uh, or Jewish. Uh, so, for example, there is no fellowship with light and darkness, as we saw last week. And so we should not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, nor their practices, nor their doctrine. And that's what John is writing about in these chapters. He's saying, be on the lookout for these deceptions. John is certain that those who've heard the gospel, upon hearing the warnings against the false teachers, will confirm the truth of the apostolic message. This is one of the greatest assurances you have as a believer if you stay true to the authentic Christian historic faith, that is, Jesus is the Christ. He is the only Son of God. He is the full, uh, complete fulfillment of all the promises to Israel, and that he alone uh, has performed righteousness, and that by grace, in faith in Jesus Christ, we can be redeemed. If you maintain that throughout your life and are never led away or, or stray from the Christian faith, that is a great assurance to you. That doesn't mean necessarily that you are truly believing, but it is a great, uh, it's, a, it's a great shield to have. So many Christians are confused about the term Antichrist, as we've examined uh, and talked about at length. And in verse 22, John explicitly says who the Antichrist is. Okay. Now, again, if you look up Antichrist in a dictionary, it's not going to have this verse, but I think that the Holy Scriptures contain a little more authority than Webster's. So in verse 22, John literally describes who the Antichrist is, and yet so many people take it to mean something completely other than what John is referring. Again, John is using this term. He's created the term. It's explicitly found in these chapters. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So in one way, John is saying the Judaizers, those who are coming in and saying we need to go back to practicing the law to obtain righteousness, and that, that by faith in Jesus, the, the Gentiles still need to conform to the law and perform these signs, ceremonies to obtain righteousness, they could be considered to be the ones who deny the Father and the Son for example, but also those who are the Gnostics, those who are the modalists, those who say that Jesus is just a manifestation of God, but is not truly God himself, and that like the the water metaphor, God is at one time gas, and at one time ice, and at one time liquid. That's a terrible metaphor. That's exactly how the modalists bring you into their trap, that God is seemingly the Spirit, God is seemingly the Father, God is seemingly the Son, but only in the way that you perceive Him, not in their true being. 
And so John is, is basically calling out all of these heresies all at the same time, which is so beautiful to me. No one who denies, verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. John is saying explicitly that those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Son of God, they do not have the Father, which presents us some interesting challenges and decisions. For example, although we value those who hold uh, the the claims of being authentically Jewish, if they deny the Son, according to John, they do not know the Father. Likewise, for the Mormon, uh, for the Muslims, they acknowledge Jesus as a prophet, but they do not believe that he is the only son of God. Therefore, we know that Allah is, if they, if Allah is a separate spiritual entity, uh, that they do not know God, you know, say what you want about God and Allah. I believe Allah is a separate name for Yahweh, uh, is not a separate name for Yahweh, excuse me. And they explicitly do worship a demon, which is enough to get you shot in most places in in the world, if you say that. But specifically, John is saying, because they do not know the Son, we know plainly that they do not have the Father. So this is this puts us as believers authentic Christians at a unique place in our culture. How do we communicate these truths in grace and in mercy? We can have inner dialogue between other faiths, but not inner participation. We can question other believers and help to try to bring them to the truth, but if they do not have the Son, according to John, they do not have the Father. This is, of course, in accord with what Jesus himself said. Only those who come to the Father, they can only do it through me. That is, Jesus is saying, if if you don't come to me, you are not a true child of God. You are not a son, little s, son of the Father. So John here is giving the bounds on Christian orthodoxy and Christian participation with other people. The reason we can have true interdenominational relationship is at the core, we all still hold to the creeds, the plain doctrines of the, of the Christian faith, not anything weird or beyond that like Jesus became God at his at his baptism which was a seriously strong heresy um, so at, at this place John is then moving on to a, a set of, of commendations and encouragements he goes on to uh, to describe exactly who the Antichrist is in these verses and Likewise, we can immediately dismiss the validity of any eschatological or end-of-the-age theology that includes the Antichrist being some, again, head of the UN, head of the EU, head of the Asian Alliance, whatever, you know, whatever you want to do there. Uh, I've heard them all. They're quite crazy. The Antichrist is not someone coming at the end of, of modern history to end the world. The Antichrist in these pessimillennial systems has the authority to bring a tribulation as if he was God, or as if he obtained some, you know, like, secondhand position to Satan himself, and then begins to rot destruction on the earth. It's not that, but rather someone who is coming against the doctrine of the apostles, that is, Jesus is the Christ, the only Son of God, who has revealed righteousness. What I mean by has revealed righteousness is Jesus Christ, when he said, uh, when he was asked, what must we do to, to be saved? Jesus Christ did not say, do the law. He said, this is what you must do. Believe in him, 
the Father, and the one who he sent, the Son. To believe in the Father and the Son is righteousness. That is the only thing that you must do, quote unquote. And of course, as Protestants, we believe that that grace to do that is dispensed to you by God himself, that the message of the gospel, when it's proclaimed authentically, contains with it grace from the Holy Spirit that would turn those who have deaf ears into open ears, that they would hear and that they would see. And so at this point, John is saying specifically, the Antichrist is just someone who teaches against the apostles. So by that definition, although I don't say that the Antichrist is walking around on the earth, I think that millions of Antichrists are walking around on the earth with that caveat and distinction. So again, John goes back to making pastoral connections. And what I mean by pastoral connections is he begins to apply it to the believers. We should be doing this as we read. Of course, the scriptures themselves contain explicit application, but we should be doing this as we read and learn from the scriptures. John goes on in verse 24 to say, Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. What was Jesus' commendation? I'm the vine, you are the branches, abide in me so that you would bear fruit and your fruit would remain. Uh, There's a great way of getting rid of vines that I've learned. Cut them off at the root, let them die on the fence, they dry up, and then you can rip them right down. If you ever try to take a vine down, don't try to take it down off the fence while it's still green. Cut it at the root, wait a week, rip it off. It's perfectly able to, uh, to wither in a few short days. That's what Jesus is saying when he's saying, abide in me. He's saying that I am the root, I am the true branch. You have been grafted in, you've been brought in, and if you abide in me, then you'll have life, water, nutrients, uh, sustenance. If you do not abide in Christ, you will wither. So John here is saying, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If you do not let the word of Christ abide in you, then you are prone to deception. You're prone to letting one of these errors or heresies infect you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. He's saying the way to maintain an authentic Christian walk is to, of course, let the word of God abide in you. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. What was Jesus' definition of eternal life? Knowing the Father and and his Son, his only Son, Jesus Christ. That was Jesus' definition. So if John here is saying, if this is what you must do to maintain protection from heresy, let the word of God, the word that the apostles spoke, abide in you. Likewise, that will maintain your understanding of eternal life. Not after you die going to heaven, but rather knowing the Father and the Son and walking with that knowledge into eternity. So, What's the nature of an Antichrist? According to John's epistle, the answer to the doctrinal controversy that the Antichrists bring is simply a return, once again, we do, we do return continually to the central faith that eternal life is knowing the Son and the Father. Again, today, most Christians are hoping that you know, their, their uh, gospel endeavors or evangelistic initiatives are plainly to get people to say the sinner's prayer so that when they die, they will go to heaven instead of hell. But that's not what Christianity is. That is, a, that is an outgrowth of authentic Christian living, but rather Christianity is that Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is working through the church to bring a message of reconciliation to those who ran away from God. And that by proclaiming that reconciliation, they can both know God now and one day in the future. Not at all 
die and go to heaven instead of die and go to hell. As if the rest of your life is just an afterthought. As if the rest of your life is not meaningful. As, as Christians, we believe that your life has meaning. And if you do not know the Father and the Son, then at best it only has subjective meaning to you personally. What the gospel is saying is your life can have objective meaning. You can know the one who is the truth, and uh, you can have a real true relationship or knowing of God. And that knowing will eventually lead to righteous judgment at the end of the age, but not that being the main point. It's a side effect. And the fact that the side effect has become the main uh, thing is is a tragedy that we should be running from. So, according to John, the answer is to return to the central Christian faith. Now, in making these warnings, John is is giving us an insight, as I've said a few times today, an insight into the purpose of Scripture. What is Scripture for? Now, the doctrine of Scripture, as we believe, is that it contains everything that is necessary to uh, to obtain salvation. That is everything that is necessary for you to know that you stand righteous before God is plainly taught in the scriptures themselves. By the doctrine of scripture, we do not mean that the the Bible itself is the word of God, capital W, but rather that the word of God, as John explains in John 1, is Jesus Christ, the eternal word which was spoken forth by the Father through the Spirit, that that capital W word has described and it revealed the Father in such a way that the lowercase w word of God is an authentic representation of Jesus Christ. So what, what we mean by that is the word is not Jesus Christ, plainly, of course, but rather that the word lowercase w contains the things which we need to understand to know Jesus Christ. Big, big letter w. For example, um, if you kept a journal of your life uh, that journal throughout your life would give a um, still biased, I mean, who is the most biased towards you but you, uh, opinion or record of your life throughout all of your different stages. You know, if you just wrote down every day what happened and what you thought about it and the tragedies and the sufferings that you went through, at the end of your life, you'd have a set of journals and they would give an accurate picture of what happened to you. Now, what we mean when we say the Word of God, or the doctrine of Scripture being that the Word of God contains the things necessary for salvation, we do not mean that by reading the Bible you are saved. We do not mean that at all. We do not mean also that anyone who reads the Bible is automatically going to be saved. What we plainly mean is that by the Holy Spirit opening up your eyes, you can read the Bible in such a way as to plainly know the simple things that are the gospel which is the message that Jesus brought. So the doctrine of scripture is, of course, given to us by the scripture itself. And John here is giving us a major uh, pillar in the doctrine of scripture. He says in verse 26 and verse 27, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. One of the major purposes of scripture is to protect you from doctrinal error. You get into these, uh, again, certain types of churches where the, they really heavily focus on prophecy, or if they take the prophetic gifts to an extreme degree, you get all sorts of weird stuff being said and emphasized in, in prophetic uh, you know, circles, prophetic communities. And so one of the main ways to protect yourself from weirdness doctrinally 
not just not just you don't like the brother, but weirdness doctrinally is to read and study, meditate, and memorize scripture. And so John here is explaining why he's writing. Verse 27, but the anointing that you received from him, that is Jesus Christ, how did they receive it? They received it by being prayed for by the apostles. Jesus, by the way, didn't pray individually for each one in Asia Minor. Um, I don't know if you know that, but Jesus didn't actually leave Israel. Uh, He kind of went to Samaria, but he didn't, you know, the Mormons again believe that Jesus came to the North American continent and preached to the Indians, which there is no evidence of in the New Testament and also logic. Verse, verse 27, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So the message for Christians is not, you need to improve yourself. You need to uh, really work hard on on your own understanding, but rather the message of, of two Christians is to continually return to the same fundamental truths of the gospel. Now that can sound very boring, and it actually is a great challenge for preachers to continually uh, make pleasing or, or make presentable, once again, the simple truths of the gospel, but I maintain that it is the only way to have a steady, stable way of life that is focused not on pursuing your goals, which will sometimes destroy you, but rather to pursue the simple Christian faith. Paul at one point is is writing and he says, I'm I'm concerned for you, my 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 children, that you will be led astray from the pure and simple devotion to the Lord. That is a, a virtue in Christianity, a virtue in Christianity that is is largely ignored today. We have uh, many people who are interested in, you know, running off and chasing this doctrine or, you know, becoming this spiritual giant. But according to the apostles, the true spiritual giants are those who do not waver in the faith. They maintain that Jesus is the Christ, and without him there is no righteousness. So, One of the central purposes of Scripture is for the defense against strange doctrine, and strange doctrine is nothing other than the idea that we need something other than Christ. When Paul was openly accusing Peter, uh, uh, openly rebuking Peter in the book of Acts, chapter fifteen, he is he is doing so because of what Peter is saying. Peter, if you don't remember the story, Peter is holding himself aloof from the Gentile Christians. Peter's a Jew, and there's the Jewish Christians, and then there are the Gentile Christians. And if you remember the controversy with Jesus in the Gospels is that Jesus was eating with tax gatherers, prostitutes, uh, sinners, right? He's eating. So Phariseeism, the, those who get mad at Jesus for doing that, is ultimately a table fellowship movement. You can't eat with these people because if you do, uh, you'll be tainted by them or they'll be tainted by you, etc., etc. If you want to have true fellowship as a worshiper of Yahweh, then you can only eat with those who are also keeping the law, according to Phariseeism. Now, what Peter is doing in Acts 15, Paul openly rebukes him for because Peter is there and he is not eating with the the Gentile Christians. Why is he not eating with them? Because basically what he's saying is they need something other than Christ to be worthy of my participation and communion with them. And what 
Paul says is he is basically repudiating the gospel. That is, Jesus Christ is the source of our righteousness, and that faith in him is the only thing necessary for us to stand righteous before God. What, what Peter is doing by not eating with the Gentiles, is he, by holding himself away from them, is he's saying they need something greater than Christ to establish a fellowship here. And that's what, what we do, isn't it? When we look in our lives and we see these deficiencies, whether it's, you know, a particular character flaw or a habit of sin or, you know, not having financial wisdom, we go out and we try all these self-help mechanisms. And we, we do, we lend our heart and, and trust to that thing other than Jesus Christ to be the source of repair or, or solidification of the deficiencies in our life. Now, I'm not saying don't be a good steward or don't, you know, work out if you need to work out or, or sleep if you need to sleep. Do those things. Establish, you know, a, a good and stable life. But if you are running around trying to just maintain, I need to make my life better. I need to grow my finances. I need to become a better person. If you're caught up in the cult of self-help, which is one of the greatest cults in the United States today, this, this cult of continual improvement, I need to get better, faster, stronger. If that is your way of living, then you are not trusting in Christ to be righteous for you, to be the righteousness that you need. Tim Keller puts it this way, whatever you answer the question of, if only I had this, that this, the relative pronoun, what it indicates is your true functional idol. That is, if only I had a bigger house, my life would be good. If only I had, you know, uh, a wife, my life would be good. I used to think that. That's a, a big struggle. Let me tell you, your life does not get put together when you get a wife. If anything in your life is missing or, or messed up, having a wife only magnifies it. Um, whatever you answer the question of, if only I had this, my life would be put together or I would finally be at rest. That is ultimately your functional idol. If only I had this guitar, if only I had this car, if only I had that hot chick, to put it crassly. Um, <clears throat> that is your functional idol. And what, what, what John is saying in these, in these passages here is the teaching that you have, abide in it, and it is eternal life. It is the true life, the true life that you need, that you require. Whatever you, whatever you are looking for. Now, I, again, I'm not saying that you shouldn't save up to buy a house. I think that's wisdom. But if you're trusting in that house being the final thing that really makes you arrive, then, then that is an idol for you. And it is very hard to detect those things, which is why I think we need brothers and sisters to point them out to us. I think personally, you know, this is... This is so invaded publishing these days that a large number of Christian books, which are, are you know, under the guise of stewardship or, or under the veil of, you know, personal responsibility, actually are being, you know, sold to people. And these people really do have idols of, if only I had that, then my life would be fulfilled. Uh, and, and we need to watch out for that. We need to go, be on the guard against that. Truly, at the end of the day, for the Christian, the only thing that you really need is to know that Jesus Christ knows you, and that you know him, and that by extension, you do have a relationship with the Father. That's what the authentic Christian life is. Now, of course, 
identifying idols is not enough. We must repent of them. And so John here is ending this chapter with a commendation. He's, he's ending the chapter with a commendation that also contains another warning. If we look to anything other than Christ to produce our righteousness, our peace, or joy in our lives, we are participating in strange worship, which comes ultimately from strange doctrine. This is a point that I want to make strongly. The root of your functional idolatry is a failure to cherish the true doctrine that Christ is enough for you. And the only way to to root out that idol is to return again and abide in the Lord. So, of course, John is not is not worried. In his commendation, he gives a steadfast indication of his resolve for the Christians, and he says that the word of Christ will ap- accomplish its work. Again, Jesus is saying, anyone that the Father gives to me, I will lose none of them. That is, Jesus is saying, of those who the Father gives to me, I have them sure in my hand, and none can snatch away from me. That's a beautiful picture. Um, and so, John here is giving a commendation at the end of this chapter. He says in verse 28, And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Again, I maintain that at his coming is specifically referring to the judgment coming that comes at the end of the age of temple worship, that is, the temple worship that was happening in Jerusalem. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Again, this is this is uh, ammo for the, the Christians in these churches. There are those who are running around claiming to be super apostles, claiming to have more authority than the twelve. Uh, and and that all the tr- all the Christians need to learn from them, but they themselves are greedy, according to Paul's ma- uh, many uh, you know polemics against them. But also they're they're practicing sexual immorality, they're practicing uh, forms of communism, etc. That these guys are running around with common purse- purses in these churches and saying you should give money to us instead of to the church you should give money to us instead of sending away a care package for the christians down in israel who were extremely poor um john is saying how do you know who is righteous and unrighteous well look at the fruit of their life are they practicing unrighteousness if they are practicing unrighteousness you know that they have not been born of christ so uh, what John is saying is that they should abide in Christ. And of course, the appearing that John refers to is the appearance of Jesus in the judgment coming against Jerusalem. Just as the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the vindication of God concerning the claims of Jesus Christ to deity, just as that happens, so also the judgment appearing of Jesus Christ in judging Jerusalem is the vindication of the church and the teaching of the apostles. There are warring factions at this point point in history. There are all sorts of heresies that are attempting to invade the church, and then there is the apostolic teaching, and then there's the Judaizers. Of course, there's the cults of Rome and, and the pagans. We don't even need to introduce them into the scene to for you to understand how large and varied this panorama of spiritual influence in the first century is. But what happens in the judgment of Jerusalem is the vindication of the apostolic teaching in a historical societal worldview perspective. That is, everyone was made aware that Judaism effectively was cut off at the root when the temple worship stopped in Jerusalem, which was God's public historic way of demonstrating that the church is the new branch that's been grafted in. 
not just the fact that all these people who were Jewish were becoming believers, but also that Judaism functionally stopped. Now, after the second temple, that is Herod's temple, was destroyed, Judaism kind of spun into this other thing, which we don't have to talk or don't have time to talk about today. But needless to say, this is the way in which God has vindicated the church. So Jesus Christ runs around and he makes all these claims saying, I'm the son of God, I'm the Messiah, uh, everyone needs to come to me, and, and the, the Jews kill him for that. What is the resurrection if it is not the public vindication of God concerning the claims that Jesus Christ, ma- Jesus Christ made? If Jesus Christ is not the son of God, then why would God have risen him from the dead? Jesus Christ is raised from the dead to be a public vindication of his claims to be the Son of God. Likewise, Judaism is ended, that that is the house of, of Babylon, as it's described in Revelation, is cut short to vindicate the doctrine of the apostles, that Jesus is the Christ. If it wasn't that way, then we would just have Judaism, Christianity, and all these other religions kind of warring around for the rest of history. And that's not what has happened. So, by extension, though John is saying to these first century Christians to abide in him so that they would not be ashamed at the coming of the Lord, that is, found to have bought into a doctrine other than the apostolic teaching, does that make sense? John is saying that they will be ashamed if, when Jesus comes against Jerusalem, they're found to have been uh, participants in a different religion other than the teaching of the apostles, who were also saying that Jesus was coming against Jerusalem, then they would have been ashamed because they would have been those who started in Christianity, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he really is coming in judgment, and then moving outside of that into a different teaching, such as Gnosticism or one of the Roman pagan cults, etc. And they would have been ashamed because they would have been seen as being wrong. As in, we we started off with the apostles who were warning us that judgment was coming, and then we left, and we left Christ, we left their teaching, and moved over to this other thing, and what they prophesied, what Jesus prophesied in his Olivet Discourse took place. They would have been ashamed there. He's not saying that you'll be ashamed or shrink back from Jesus in his coming in the senses, in, in the sense of at the end of the age, you'll actually be found to be a sinner still while believing in Christianity. So likewise, by extension, we learn that it is good for us to abide in the vine. Again, John's not specifically talking to us, but by extension, we know that he is. If we abide in the vine, then we have fellowship with the true branch who supplies all that we ever could need or could want. So again, antichrists are not the leader of the EU, the leader of the UN, the leader of the New York Stock Exchange. The Antichrist is simply someone who teaches against Christ. And we can, if we let our functional idols take over our lives, we can turn away from the true Christian faith and worship strange strange doctrines or, or participate in strange worship. Likewise, according to John, what is the solution? The solution is once again to return and abide in the vine. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask you that you would deliver us from the strange teachings concerning what you want to do at the end of the age. We pray that we would, with your prophets of old, look forward to that day and see the glory of God covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. And of course, the waters cover the sea totally. 
So Lord, we, we ask you to deliver us from weirdness, uh, not just not liking our brothers, but deliver us from weirdness in that we do not participate in functional idols nor explicit other religions that, that none of us would be <clears throat> dissuaded or, or running away from the truth of the gospel that you <clears throat> are the father and that Jesus Christ, you are his only son and that, that by believing in you, we would have eternal life, that we would know you, that we would know the father Lord, that we ask you today that you would deliver us from all manner of deception and every functional idol or idol of our heart that is leading us away from the simple truth that you, Jesus, are the most precious thing in our life, that you are the only thing that we would, that we could need to have our lives put together. Lord, we, we ask you that, that you would remove us from any idol that would claim otherwise. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.